This season of Just a Special is brought to you by Kids Crossing, a private foster care agency created by foster parents for foster parents. So Rachel, I say that arguably the most important decision to make when becoming a foster parent is choosing what agency you're going to go through. And why is that, Natasha? As a foster parent, you really have to rely on your foster care agency for support. My partner and I chose Kids Crossing, and we really have no regrets. What are some of those services that you and your partner used? Well, Kids Crossing provides many no-cost services, including therapy services for the kids, family therapy, family preservation services, foster parent support groups, trauma-informed parenting trainings, and much more. Kids Crossing even gave my partner and I a parenting coach, which was super helpful as we don't have any kids of our own. And where can people go to become a licensed foster parent through Kids Crossing? Kids Crossing has four locations across Colorado in Denver, Colorado Springs, Pueblo, and La Junta. Learn more at kidscrossing.com and tell them just a special sent you. So I pick her up at 12 every Saturday and lo and behold, I pull up into the driveway. She is in the living room window waiting for me and does this little dance as I walk up and I'm doing this weird little dance. It's just a happy dance and we're both so happy to see each other. But just seeing her waiting for me in the window makes me melt actually. Welcome to Just as Special, the place to learn more about foster care from diverse perspectives. I'm Natasha, a foster mom. And I'm Rachel, a mentor to kids in foster care. Today, we're going to dive into a different side of foster care, volunteering. Rachel, as a volunteer yourself, I'm sure you've experienced that sometimes a volunteer role can be underestimated. And in my experience, talking with former kids in care and even current kids in care, oftentimes they bring up how much they appreciate the volunteers in their lives. Yes. And I think something that we've said continuously through our podcast is it truly takes a village to raise a child. And I think the most important thing that a volunteer can do is to continuously show up for that child. And that's also something that our guest today is going to talk about. Right. And a huge shout out to our cousin Nagisa for connecting us with today's guest, Denise Lombard. Denise lives in California, was a single mother, and has now been a CASA volunteer for several years. She's going to get into what that means a little bit later on. And Denise talks to us from a volunteer perspective, but her approach to supporting kids in care really gives us takeaways we can all learn from no matter what our role is. And Denise and I started off talking about how her kids would describe her. But when they were young, I felt like I was their world. And then the teenage years hit. And um, then I was mean. I was embarrassing. I was a control freak. Um, and then after the teenage years and now into adult, um, I, I think they look at me as more as a friend who they can talk to. And in talking with my daughter, I said, you know, you may ask that question. And she said, Mom, you are my world again. So that just made my day. Oh, that's so sweet. And I think also hope for all the parents in the trenches of teenagerhood, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's a roller coaster. It is for sure. Can you describe your own childhood? Yeah, I mean, um, what's normal, but uh, I'd say it was pretty normal. You know, my mother and father are still together after 50 plus years of marriage, had a younger brother, um, you know, spent most of my school years here in the Bay Area. Um, But I always remember, you know, both my parents instilling the importance of doing my best, um, importance of getting an education or a trade, 
Um, and also just, they, they were always so supportive, like whatever you want to do, whatever you want to be, you can do it if you just put your mind to it. So, you know, a lot of encouragement over the years. Mm. Would you say that having that strong sense of maybe confidence from your childhood helped you when you were like a single mom for all those years? I think so too. You know, my, my mom and dad raised me with good, you know, budgetary financials, you know, skills and so forth. So, you know, I learned early on, you don't overspend and, and you are able to care for yourself and not independent on anybody else. So those were extremely critical as I became a single mom with two very young children. Yeah. And I can imagine that also translated into you being a CASA as well. Can you describe for us what a CASA is and what inspired you personally to become a CASA? So CASA stands for Court Appointed Special Advocate. And it's basically a nonprofit that's been around since probably 1980s. And it serves children from birth to 21 years old who are placed in foster care. Um, I'm with the Silicon Valley uh, particular branch. And so it's our Santa Clara County dependency court system. And I think a fallacy is, oh my gosh, are these bad kids that are there? They're, they're in jail? No, no, these are not bad kids. These are kids that have experienced trauma, whether that's abuse, neglect, or abandonment. They've truly done nothing wrong. And we they serve these children by assigning them a CASA. And that is just basically a caring, stable, reliable adult in their life that can help them through school, through navigating through this sometimes complicated um, foster care system and just be there for them. Show up when you say you are and uh, just kind of be that advocate for them. And also too, right, a portion of that is representing their interests in court. There are court dates about every six months with most cases and we are filling out court reports from our lens, our perspective on what we see. Do we think they're in a thriving environment? How are they doing with school? How are they doing with their caregivers? Um, and, you know, I've been in a lot of these um, sessions in court where I love that the judge is very interested to hear what CASAs have to say and have the ability to influence and get that child's voice heard during these sessions. Bina CASA is a position of great responsibility, right? And great importance because navigating the foster care system or navigating court, right, can be daunting for even adults. Mm -hmm. So for this kid, for them to be able to have a third party that's there for them. And then like you're saying too, like to judges take what you're saying very seriously. Again, having somebody that doesn't have an ulterior motive or interest representing them in court and being able to provide those details. Mm -hmm. So what inspired you personally to become involved as a CASA? As a single mother, I didn't have a lot of time on my hands, but I loved getting involved with my own children's school activities. So I facilitated, it was called Roots and Wings, and it was about instilling self-confidence in the children. And it was about bullying and, and all these different things that are so needed for rooting our children in a solid foundation. So I taught a PE class. I did reading on Fridays. And then when they moved into junior high, um, I was chaperoning some of the dances, which that didn't go over well, well with them either, that their mother was there chaperoning their, their junior high dances. Then there was this program called Time In, where there was some children, which they called were kind of at risk for whatever reasons. It could be home life. I mean, some were actually homeless. 
and they paired uh, me up with a couple of children. Not a lot of training, but I, I would go once a week during their PE class and just chat with them in the rec room and see how they're doing and just kind of be that, you know, listening um, support to them. And, and also I, I would make some relationships with um, their teachers if they were struggling. I would help them with homework or just sit and chat about how they're feeling. And I loved that. And then when my children got older and um, off to college and so forth, I thought, well, I got some extra time on my hands. And Cisco, where I work, is huge into giving back. And there was this advertisement about, hey, do you want to become involved with Court Appointed Special Advocates? And there was such a moving story through an email that caught my attention. It was a story of a Cisco employee who was a CASA to a 13-year-old girl. And like most 13-year-old girls, she was pretty miserable. <laughs> and, you know, and to be in foster care too, they were, she was even more miserable. And she, she wasn't very warm to the CASA. And it was kind of a struggle. And she turned to the CASA and said, how much are they paying you to visit me every week? And the CASA said, oh, I don't get paid anything. I do this because, you know, I want to be here. And it was like clicked and it was the change in the whole relationship. So through teary eyed reading that, I'm like, okay, I'm going to sign up for this. And that was my ticket in through that story. That That is touching because a lot of these kids, unfortunately, you know, they're having a lot of dealings with people that they feel, you know, like have to deal with them or, you know, foster parents yeah. do get paid to do yeah. this. And I can imagine, yeah, especially for a 13 year old, that's a lot to have to handle and no one wants to feel like they're a job. So how long have you been at CASA for? And can you walk us through the different pairings you've had with kids through CASA? So uh, it's been a little over six years, time flies. And I have been an advocate for three children. And they happen to all be girls. And the first one, um, probably my toughest one, um, toughest one to talk about too, is a um, 12-year-old girl. and. Um, her mother was struggling with some mental illness and some drug issues, and um, the father really wasn't in the picture or known. So she was living with this wonderful, wonderful foster family that not only took her, but her younger sister and younger brother, and just the most loving home ever. And um, we hit it off really well, listening to her favorite music, Ariana Grande and Rihanna and all these great music. And she just would love to, to say, hey, Denise, um, keep driving. Can we just drive around and listen to music? She didn't want to be dropped off yet. Not that it was a loving home, but she just liked to drive around and talk. And, you know, we did many different things, horseback riding. I helped her with school projects, you know, talked with some of her, her teachers um, and, you know, Manny Petties, you know, you name it. And um, just getting to to do some fun things. And it took a turn and um, some rebellion against her foster parents, some rebellion against me, and she ran away. And um, then they put her in several different foster homes and I didn't hear from her. And um, it was about a year. And she called me out of the blue on my cell phone and said, do you know who this is? And I said, of course I do. And we kind of reunited and everything was good. And then she disappeared again, homeless. And um, 
actually got um, pregnant by somebody much, much older when she was homeless, um, had a baby, went back into a foster care home. I actually watched her baby for her when she went through some classes and so forth. And then it just happened again where she wound up on the street again, heavy drug abuse. And, um, you know, I checked in a while ago with the, the foster mom and said, do you know where she is? And she told me that time about a year ago, she was barely, um, barely alive because of the drug. And I, so it just breaks my heart, you know, do I honestly call the foster mom, you know, often or, or as much as I should probably not, but that was one that was just really upsetting that how, how could we all let this, how did we let this happen? And she had a huge support team, but um, I think there was some mental illness with her as well. Certainly some PTSD and um, couldn't keep her um, at home. So my first experience was not what I would call a real success. Um, but then I went on and I picked another little girl who was four years old at the time, living with her wonderful paternal grandparents, uh, whose father was um, not alive. And uh, I think he passed when she was like two. And um, the mother had mental and drug abuse problems. And it takes a long time. And that's one of the things I'm sure foster parents are aware of and probably frustrated with, but it takes a long time for adoptions to happen. So she's in this wonderful home with grandparents and it took, oh my goodness, probably five or six years for the adoption to be settled. And, and one of the things they teach us at CASA is the main goal is to do reunification with the parents. They believe if the parents can turn their lives around and get, get the training and stay clean and, and take the appropriate parental classes, that that is the best place for the child. So they do give the parents some chances to, to turn around. And I think that's what causes the length of time of when somebody can actually say, okay, rights are terminated, let's move forward with adoption. So um, wonderful experience with the four-year-old that is now 10. Uh, case was dismissed, and um, but she's still in my life. Um, and then I did just take on another little girl that is seven, about almost two years ago. And um, I feel lucky for these children that are placed in these loving homes versus several different foster care systems or homes. And so this little girl lives with her wonderful, strong grandmother. And I see her every Saturday and we do bike riding and we do crafts and we do reading, but she just is very active. Um, grandma doesn't get out as much, doesn't see her mother and she's not as much and she's not as active. So I am on the hook for the strenuous workouts, bike rides, skateboarding type activities, which keeps me, you know, young and, and uh, fit as well. That's great. And can you describe how she waits for you every time? Oh my gosh. Yes. So, I mean, talk about a highlight. So 
I pick her up at 12 every Saturday, and lo and behold, I pull up into the driveway. She is in the living room window waiting for me and does this little dance as I walk up, and I'm doing this weird little dance. You know, it's just a happy dance, and we're both so happy to see each other. But just seeing her waiting for me in the window makes me melt, actually. And, you know, that's one of the things they teach us as a CASA is they probably don't have a lot of consistency in their life or their parents might have let them down, or they might be waiting for visits with their parents. The one thing you got to do is show up. If you say you're going to be there, then be there. Because look, she's waiting for me every Saturday. That's so sweet. Hearing you describe this, you can tell you had a really deep connection with each of these kids. And also, you can hear the joy in your voice, too. of the joy that they're bringing you. And I think a lot of people think when they get involved in foster care, oh, you know, it's going to be me that's doing all the giving. But it's just amazing how these really give back to you, right? I know. That is my word. You you hit it, uh, Natasha. Joy. She brings me joy. They all have in some way. Um, But this little one has just been so, so much joy to me. And you mentioned too that the second child is, um, you know, even though she's been adopted, she's still in your life. How does that look for you too? So that was kind of one of my favorite memories too of being a CASA is after five or six years, I got to attend the court session where her grandparents officially adopted her and she got to sign the document and her grandparents and she came dressed in this like super fancy princess dress. And I brought her a little you know, necklace to go with it. I think she even had a tear on. And um, the grandparents only speak Spanish. So um, the little 10-year-old often translates for me, but the social worker uh, translated for me. She said, the, the grandparents want you to be her fairy godmother. Denise. So, you know, it was just so appropriate. She's in this princess dress, Tierra, and I'm the fairy godmother. So I said I would love to be. That's really special because a lot of these kids, right, they don't have the same familial ties that maybe other kids have that haven't entered the foster care system, right? Like, you know, with her parents, she's not able to have that. But how wonderful that you guys created something new, which I love, a new term even, the fairy godmother. I love that. Because as a foster mom, sometimes I get frustrated of the lack of language there are to describe these different relationships that are important in a kid's life that don't fall into the societal norms. So I love that, you know, make up your own term then of that fairy godmother Um, and how special that is something like so organic of a way for you to show up and still support that family and that and that child. So you mentioned um, one of your favorite memories of being a CASA. Do you have another one you'd like to share as well? So it's come full circle. So if you remember, I said, you know, what what really attracted me to be a CASA was that story about the woman and the teenager. So I was with a little seven-year-old. I think it was like a Monday holiday or something. And I said, hey, isn't it cool? You don't have school today. And I don't have work. We got the whole day off. And she goes, what do you mean? You have to work. And I didn't catch on at first. I go, no, I don't. And she's like, well, you're here. And so I'm in full circle, right? And I said, oh my gosh. I go, I don't think this is work. I said, this is fun time for me. I just, I come here because you're not a job. I said, you're fun time for me. Because, you know, I think she knows the other um, support that she has, you know, that is their job. And so I, you know, I didn't know how much I should tell a seven-year-old about it, but I, 
convert, you know, just come out and say, well, I don't get paid, but just saying, hey, this is not a job. This is my fun time. I like how you brought that up. Like so many of the other positions in these kid lives, right, are like the sterilized thing of work, right? Um, So this is something that's able to be a little more organic. So you mentioned there was definitely some challenges with that first CASA um, connection you had. What are some of the other challenges that you've had? I've had it pretty easy because the caretakers have all been um, pretty welcoming to me. I mean, I have uh, a friend of mine that became a CASA and she will come to the door to pick up a little girl and the aunt will say, Dina's here. And just a really, you know, not a very happy, <laughs> pleasant voice. And she'll say, and, and don't feed her any sweets and don't take her to yoga land. And, and she, you know, she's not allowed this. You know, it's just um, doesn't seem very welcoming for my friend. But, you know, I, I, I do understand the importance of making sure the caretakers and even the parents that may still be in the picture don't see me as a threat in any way. I'm not there to spy and report on them. I'm really there to just help be another advocate for their child. And whether that's the foster parents or grandma or or the mom and dad, and I'm not trying to be the mom. Uh, I have my own children. You know, you, you kind of alleviate those threats and and I, I share a little bit of myself with, you know, some of the mothers that I've met of these children and say, oh, you know, I, I have a daughter. She's in her 20s. I remember, you know, when they were young and, and I compliment them on, you know, some of the great behaviors their children have and say, oh, you've you've brought a really wonderful, you know, little girl into the world. So, you know, and just making sure they know I do respect them in some form, fashion and and understand the difficulties some of them are going through. Mm, right. Cause it can be so complicated when you're navigating all these different relationships. You have the relationships with their caretakers, with the social workers, all of that. Can you kind of talk about the importance of those different relationships a little more and especially how you support the caretakers in their role? It is really critical. And, it, and, and sometimes you got to take a time out to say, let's just make sure everybody understands everybody's role too. If the foster parent feels comfortable or the grandparent feels comfortable, but I will handle the school stuff, you know, because that's something CASAs do. We can handle talking with the teachers and the IEPs. So it's know your role, know how you can support. If the caregiver or the foster parent has the school taken care of and has the medical then let it go unless they want you to help. But, you know, you can offer, do you want me to help anyway with school? How it's, it's having that conversation. How can I help best? And, you know, how I'm helping best with some of these children I've had is I helped them with schoolwork. I did get involved with some of their school. I, I just let them to go out and be a kid and just be a kid for a day and do what they want to do, whether that's the park or eat an ice cream or play a game it's important for the CASA to say, how can I, how can I best help? And maybe even give some examples. And I've even said to one of the grandmas is, it doesn't have to just be on my terms every Wednesday night or every Saturday. You, you know, if you need a night out and need a break, call me. I can take her for a couple of hours. So just that partnership, I think is important. And what can I reinforce? Oh, she's been a little rough with the dog lately. 
let me take her to Petco and, and see some of the dogs and talk about how we treat animals and stuff. So how can I help reinforce what they do at home? I can imagine that being so powerful, especially like as a foster mom, sometimes it, it gets a little messy with the different roles, right? Like, you know, the child's like therapist might have one opinion. The home coordinator might have another opinion. And sometimes I'm like, hey, I'm here every day with right. the kid, right. like take my opinion. So yeah, I mean, if I had a, a CASA come in and say, how can I support what you're trying to teach at home? I mean, that would just be so big for me. I feel like Anne would alleviate a lot of, like if I had anxiety or stress around it, I feel like it would alleviate a lot of that. I love how you go in and you're just really clear on what your intentions are. And then going that extra step to say, hey, like how can I back you up with what you're saying? Because sometimes kids do need to hear the same thing from multiple adults. So that's huge. Can you also too talk to the importance of not judging? And I know that's something that is really important to you personally. So if you could expound on that. I think I've hopefully evolved as a person over the years too. And I think back and, you know, perhaps I was judging people, you know, and, and their choices and, and those type of things. And what really comes to light is the importance of, we all know this word, empathy, you know, put yourself in their shoes. And, you know, I, I don't, thank goodness, I've never had a, a an addiction to drugs or alcohol. So I don't really know what that's like. And I think, you know, way back when, when I was less educated regarding addictions, I just thought, wow, how can people choose drugs over, over their kids? Now I get it's so much more complex than that. It's not that they are deliberately choosing an addiction over a child and, and just learning so much more about how complex these issues are, the impacts of drugs. You know, really altering people's thinking, people's priorities, they, they kind of lose control. And the more I get educated on that and mental illness too, the more we all become more educated on addictions and mental illness and sometimes those go hand in hand. Um, I think the, the less judging and the more empathy and understanding for how they got to where they are, this is really important. We're so thankful for our community of supporters that makes Just as Special possible. This season of Just as Special is brought to you by Kids Crossing, a private foster care agency created by foster parents for foster parents. So Rachel, as you know, my partner and I started becoming licensed to foster parent through our county and then switched to Kids Crossing. Natasha, how did both of those experiences compare? Well, I'm really amazed at all the additional supports Kids Crossing has provided us with, including a home coordinator. So our home coordinator is our first point of contact whenever we need anything, and she's always available and always on top of it. And she's also helped us really navigate our placements team, which can get confusing when there's so many people involved. And she'll even help us decide next steps when we're unsure of what's best for the kid in our home. And where can people go to become a licensed foster parent through Kids Crossing? Kids Crossing has four locations across Colorado and Denver, Colorado Springs, Pueblo, and La Junta. Learn more at kidscrossing.com and tell them just a special sent you. As you were talking, I was thinking how, as a foster parent, I've sort of had to redefine what I define as success. Personally, you know, with a child in my home, for example, our kid... Um, she's 16. She didn't go to school for a week. 
And for me, I was like, I feel like a failure. We definitely let our team know what was going on. And in my mind, it's like a massive deal and everything. And they kind of were like, you know what? It's not the best, but, you know, it's also not the worst. I'm interested. Have you had like sort of a similar experience where like you would have defined success, you know, as a CASA one way, but then, you know, you kind of had to change that. I think we all kind of know the system's not perfect too. Am I going to fix the whole foster care system? I don't think so. Um, But if I make a difference in one child's life, I think that's what my goal is, a positive difference. And it goes back to some of my parenting uh, skills I've learned with my two children is, you know what, pick your battles. So they didn't wear a jacket and two mismatched socks. Who cares? They got in trouble at school. Okay, you know, we'll get over it. Life goes on. And, you know, even, you know, my daughter was accused of bullying, you know, in elementary school. She was the bully, which is awful as I'm teaching anti-bullying techniques. But, you know what? She learned through it. And then, you know, as she progressed on, she became the protector of people that were bullied. So, I mean, nobody has a book on how to be a great foster parent, how to be a great parent, CASA. It's those small wins that we can all just kind of look forward to and pick your battles. And no, life is not perfect. Yeah. What really struck me in that is you were like, you know, my goal is to make a positive difference, not to fix everything, which I think is a very healthy view of the whole thing because there's so much beyond our control. And what are some things you do? um, You've mentioned a little bit, but if there's anything more specific that um, you do to kind of not be seen so much as an outsider when you come into these families to make that positive difference for a child? When we get on these calls with the whole wraparound team and, you know, the caretaker might be struggling with some of the behavior and I may go, oh, well, she had really good manners and she did this and she did that. It all seems like roses with me. I actually say, I get why it's roses with me. I'm taking her to the ice cream store. I'm not at home. And I, I there's that empathy. I I understand. Guess what? She probably wouldn't be all sweet to me if I was telling her what time to go to bed and what to eat and what time, you know, get up for school. You got to go to school. So I acknowledge the role I play is less structured. And of course, I won't see the same behavior things or problems necessarily that the caregiver, the foster parent sees 24 hours a day. And um, just acknowledging that it's not like, well, gee, she doesn't do that for me, so it must be you, which is so far from the truth. It's, hey, give me 24 hours with her, and I bet you I will see the same behavior issues. I can imagine that acknowledging pieces is really big for people to just be able to hear that and then let out that like sigh of relief, right? Like they don't have to defend what it is like that they're seeing and all of that. I know with the first case that you had, um, that you did feel like a little bit of an outsider, especially when you were like going to court and advocating for the child in a way that other people weren't. Would you feel comfortable sharing about that? Yeah, sure. So, you know, after being bounced around from leaving a wonderful foster care to um, her final destination before being homeless, um, you know, there were some things I just, I didn't feel were right. She was 15 by then, 15, still seeing this 
28-year-old that impregnated her, um, who was a drug uh, addict, and people being okay with she's still in this relationship, and maybe they could invite him to go on their vacation together, and I would write in the court report, she needs to get rid of toxic relationships in her life, and um, the judge kind of said right there in court, wait, what? Why isn't this guy been picked up? He's impregnated a, you know, underage girl and it caused, you know, a little bit of scurrying by some of the other, the, you know, the legal representation there on, um, yeah, why hasn't anything been done to pick this person up? Some of my court reports got into the hands of the teenage girl. And uh, she said, well, you said, I can't see, you know, my boyfriend anymore. I guess it was under her bed and she was reading it, um, which I don't know how that happened, but it did. Um, and I said, what I said was toxic relationships. And, you know, somebody almost 15 years older than you would be considered a toxic relationship. And um, it, it, she was very angry, very upset at me um, about that. And that's some of the training they give us as CASAs too, is be, be very careful what you write in that court report because the caregiver will probably see it. And sometimes the teenagers might see it as well. And, you know, the social worker could see it too. So if I said, gee, the social worker is so unresponsive, um, that probably won't score points in me developing a positive relationship with that social worker either. Mm. Yeah. What are some of the ways that you are able to develop positive relationships besides with the caretakers, with the other people on the team, like the social workers? Just simple things. Um, I, I certainly provide positive comments. There's, you know, somebody in their early 20s that leads all of these calls we have every other week. She does a great job following up. Just feedback, appreciation, bringing her lunch one day when we were doing a handoff. She was leaving. Uh, the little girl, seven-year-old girl, I was coming for a visit, brought lunch from Panera for the grandmother and her. Um, just little random acts of kindness. You know, even the mother of the seven-year-old, it was her birthday coming up. So I went shopping with her daughter and we, we put a picture of her in a frame we got at the dollar store and her mother loves owls, she told me. We got a little uh, calendar with owls and uh we're going to have her give that to her mother for her birthday. And the little seven-year-old is so sweet. She's like, so I'll tell my mom it's from you and me. You know what? This was your whole idea. I said, you can say it's from just you. I wouldn't mind. So, you know, those are things you got to be careful of and not creating that resentment from the parents that sometimes aren't seeing their child as much as I may be able to see their child. It sounds like you kind of are always looking through every situation from different lenses, right? Like not just your perspective, but the child's perspective, but also their team around them. Like there are different perspectives as well. What are some things you've learned about yourself as you've been a CASA? I can't believe just the joy this brings me I'm back to the joy again, too, is so, you know, they say, you know, do you want to be a CASA? You can change the life of a child that is in foster care. And I'm like, wow, you're not only changing their life. Trust me, if you, you are a CASA, 
you're going to change your life too. And you're going to find joy in that too. I'm just making this difference. So the joy it's bringing me, I think being a better person, you know, those, those traits, empathy, non-judgmental. I mean, doesn't that make everybody a better person? I love that. I feel like anytime you try to give, you get back more. Exactly. Yeah. And then the most, another happy moment too, was as this seven-year-old's case is coming to closure, um, the grandma said on the last call, well, what happens to this team? What happens to Denise? And I go, Denise is going nowhere. I said, I will be in your granddaughter's life as long as you both want me. And uh, she's like, well, you're like family. And I feel that way too. I just, to be called part of their extended family is such a compliment. And that's been a, a two-year journey with them. And I just feel privileged that she sees me as part of the family. That's so huge. It really is. And um, during the first interview of the podcast, we had a lady on named Maddie Baker, who was a former foster kid and now a social worker. And that's something she mentioned too, is sometimes the volunteers or the team members like her social worker, like she considered them family bouncing around home to home. And like you're saying before too, sometimes a casa is one of the only consistents in a child's life. And so, yeah, it's a huge responsibility, but also really beautiful how that can grow to be something so strong as being considered part of the family. How I look at it too, is like each family has their own culture, right? Regardless of ethnicity and all of that. What are some ways you've been able to acknowledge different cultures, different family cultures, and kind of navigate that? She's now 10. Started seeing her when she was four. You know, having grandparents that do not speak uh, English as their, I mean, very, very little English. So this little four-year-old was my translator. And so I would have um, this woman at work who was bilingual teach me some sentences and phrases to say as I greeted the grandparents. And sometimes they would just kind of shake their head and laugh because I, I screwed it up quite, <laughs> quite, quite a bit. Um, but just, you know, I acknowledged that one day I was about 10 minutes late and I always like to be on time. And, you know, some of the areas that the some of them live in are, you know, more crime-ridden and underserved communities, I would say. And there was like, there was police activity and there was an outline of somebody who was shot on my way there. And I said, oh my goodness. I said, tell your grandma, I'm so sorry I'm late. There was a, there was a lot of police activity around the corner. So she translated and then her grandmother said something. And then she says to me, oh, that that's always the case, Denise. We always have police activity here. <laughs> I'm like, oh, goodness, what's going on? But that's something they're used to. Or, or, you know, going to one of her school projects, I might be the only blonde white woman in there. It's, you know, predominantly Hispanic community. And, you know, I suddenly see what it feels like to be the minority of a particular group. And how does that feel? It helps me learn about inclusion and collaboration and diversity and, and how do people feel looking different than the masses or the groups that, you know, we all form. Yeah, I think that's so important, right, to have that sense of understanding and to really, in a way, sort of place yourself in somebody else's shoes. And you, you touched on this a little bit before, too, but I was curious if you had any other insight into this. Um 
but how being a mother and having raised your own children informs how you're a CASA worker? So all of the three girls knew my children's name by heart and the one that's been adopted has met my daughter, Lexi, and, you know, some great teaching moments there. My daughter just became a police officer. And the second child uh, that I advocated for did not like the police because police took mommy away from her and she had to go in a police car and then she had to go to some foster care, a strange home. Um, So she had this fear of police. And talking to her about Lexi, who she's met, is going through the police academy, and she's now a police officer, and, and you know, explaining to her that night, I'm sure it's some PTSD too, that night the police officers took her away, they were taking her to protect her, because mommy wasn't able to protect her at that time. And talking through those things, um, I think is a huge difference. That's pretty amazing, but some simple things like, you know, when I go on a run or a bike ride or a trail, I always said, you know, when I took Lexi and Michael on their bike ride, you can never go so far ahead of me that you can't see me. So I feel like they see maybe some normalcy too and what boundaries are and what other mothers have done for their children. And, you know, and when I say you can't do this and I talk to them about, you know, Sometimes I have to say no to you. I can't say yes all the time. You know, I I reference what I've done with my children. Yeah, I imagine that makes them also feel special and like part of that group, right? Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm, That you're doing the same for their own children. Because a lot of times I've heard from former foster kids, especially, they feel like they're not getting treated like the other kids, the biological kids. So um, what was the process for you to become a Cossack? Yeah, um, it's pretty intense, but it's certainly doable. So there's some interviews um, that take place, some initial interviews. And um, then there's training. There was classroom exercises. There was amazing um, special guests that came in to help train. uh, Because anybody who is a CASA is also a mandated reporter. So we would also have to make we report anything that we see that could be harmful to the child. It, it may seem a little daunting, a little bit, the training, but it goes by pretty quickly and you get to form um, a group of people that you can depend on that go through the class with you. So you can have a set of um, best practices to share with, or if you run into a problem, the graduating class can sometimes remain in, in touch on talking about uh, some of their their experiences. And that's the great thing about what I love about this organization is everybody has a supervisor you can talk with when you become a CASA. There's groups, there's small discussions about how they solve some problems or any ideas on best practices. So it's really a, a strong community group that that is really there for you. So it was a total of 30 hours of training. And um, once you complete that, after an extensive background check and face-to-face interviews, et cetera, then you get to be appointed to a case. And they actually let you look through some of the cases to see maybe what you'd be most comfortable with. Are you more comfortable with a baby? Are you more comfortable with a teenager, a boy, a girl? And they give you some flexibility on 
who you want to be paired with, which is kind of nice. Or do you want to be paired with siblings, which is nice as well to, to have two children you're supporting. And what was the main focus of your training that you received? I would say it was a lot about the court system, understanding the different phases that these children go through. That um, was some psychological and there was judges coming in talking about what they see, how to be a, a mandated reporter. And then the great news is this program um, also provides and requires ongoing training on a regular basis every year. And there's lots of seminars, there's books they recommend to make sure we are kept up to date and informed on how to be the best we can be. I know in more recent years, there has been a big shift in the foster care system to focus more on trauma-informed training. So I'm imagining that's probably what a lot of that ongoing training is, right? Like how trauma affects the brain for children and different um, techniques you can use to connect and, and help kids make healthy choices. Exactly. We see, um, or I've seen as well, PTSD. They're impacted from when they're very, very young. And these come out in different various forms of behavior and understanding them and, and, and learning what, what's causing it and how to help soothe those behaviors. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about life after CASA. So once the case is dismissed and closed, what usually happens next? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, in the story of the second little girl, there was this wonderful adoption process where that was in court and signing papers and the judge asking the, the little girl, is this, you know, where you want your legal guardianship to be? And, you know, and, and just a wonderful celebration. We all have a picture together at the courthouse with her and her princess dress. And, um, and then after that, you know, as I have said with the last two is, I'm not going anywhere. I'll be around as long as you want me around. So those visits continue. And um, I do think it's important, like, so now I have the 10-year-old now that's adopted, and now I have the seven-year-old. I need to make sure, since I'm still working full-time, I balance that and with my personal life, too. So I don't want to take too much on that I ever stop committing and following those commitments to these children because even once they're adopted I mean that doesn't mean everything's great and they don't forget their years in foster care or that neglect or abuse they had those probably aren't going to go away and they need that advocate I think or consistency in their life even in addition to the the parents or the caregivers that have adopted them Mm. yeah I think that's so true right and that's one of the markers that the foster care system looks at in order to determine like, is a kid going to be successful into adulthood is how many consistent connections and healthy relationships does that person have, right? Because we all need support in our lives. You're getting support from your supervisor, from other CASAs. Um, You know, you're balancing your life as well, making sure you're not burning out because, you know, when you make a commitment to a kid, like you're saying, you don't want to overcommit and not be able to follow through on that and be another one of the statistics in their lives of people who promise things but don't follow through um, and how healing it is for a kid to have that person who keeps showing up. Do you have any advice for people either thinking about becoming a CASA or really early on in their journey of being a CASA? Maybe if, even if you're considering being a foster parent, maybe this is like a stepping stone 
possibly um, before you graduate to be a foster parent. I would say when you think about becoming a CASA, I would caution you to think you're going to fix the foster care system. <laughs> I would uh, encourage you to make your goal, how can I make a positive difference in a child's life? And that is what I would focus on. I, I wouldn't worry too much as, am I good enough? What if I make a mistake? I think it's about listening. I think it's about showing up. I don't think that's too difficult for many people to do. So I think anybody who's considering it and has the heart for this will be just fine and can make that positive difference in a child's life. Well, I don't know about you, Natasha, but I definitely learned a lot from Denise today. I really loved how she was open about her first disappointment with her first experience being a CASA volunteer. I think it's so important because no matter how you're volunteering in foster care, I believe that we're all going to face hardships like that and disappointments. But what I particularly like is that she didn't let that get the best of her and she continued to volunteer. What I also really loved about Denise is how she's constantly juggling all the different perspectives when it comes to how she shows up for these kids, as well as their families, how she's constantly thinking about how is a bio parent going to be perceiving this or how is a foster family going to be perceiving how I'm showing up. And she's always making sure that she's doing so in a way that is really a team player. Yeah, absolutely. I love that Denise is a team player. And for those of you listeners at home who are ready to volunteer, go to nationalcasagal.org. That's spelled nationalcasagal.org. And if you're a foster parent interested in getting a CASA appointed for the kid in care in your home, your first step would be to talk to your caseworker about getting that process started. We also have a blog post on our website titled First Steps to Getting Involved with Foster Care in Big or Small Ways that links to more information about being a CASA as well as other volunteering opportunities. That's a wrap. Special thanks to our guest, Denise Lombard. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear from you about what you thought about this episode as well as any ideas for future episodes. Feel free to reach out to us on email at hello at justaspecial.com. This episode is produced in Denver, Colorado by House of Pod and made possible by generous support from Kids Crossing. This season of Just a Special is brought to you by Kids Crossing, a private foster care agency created by foster parents for foster parents. So Rachel, I say that arguably the most important decision to make when becoming a foster parent is choosing what agency you're going to go through. And why is that, Natasha? As a foster parent, you really have to rely on your foster care agency for support. My partner and I chose Kids Crossing, and we really have no regrets. What are some of those services that you and your partner used? Well, Kids Crossing provides many no-cost services, including therapy services for the kids, family therapy, family preservation services, foster parent support groups, trauma-informed parenting trainings, and much more. Kids Crossing even gave my partner and I a parenting coach, which was super helpful as we don't have any kids of our own. And where can people go to become a licensed foster parent through Kids Crossing? Kids Crossing has four locations across Colorado in Denver, Colorado Springs, Pueblo, and La Junta. Learn more at kidscrossing.com and tell them just a special sent you.